Well, hey, Seco's family and everyone joining us online right now. It's great to be with you. And hey, I'm really thankful for the opportunity to share with you this morning as we close out our series through Romans 12 called Won't You Be My Neighbor? That's right. Today is the final sermon in this series. And there's a temptation when you're the one closing out the you're preaching the final sermon in a series. It's real tempting to go back and revisit and reteach every single point that was made up until now. And we're not going to do that. Don't worry. We're not going to do that. What I really want to do is go back and fix and correct some things that were said along the way. I'm just kidding. We're not going to do that either. What I want to do is end today where we began at the beginning. You see, over the last several weeks, as all of us have been thrust into lockdown and uh, sheltering at home, uh, we've been exploring what grace looks like in, t- in this time of social distancing. And social distancing, that's a word, I mean, I had never heard that word until two months ago. Uh, but we've been looking at what does grace look like in a time like this? And, uh, you know, as Christians, we talk a lot about grace. We talk a lot about it. We sing about it. We preach about it. Uh, we, we talk, grace is a big deal. Uh, we believe grace changes everything. And so it, and we believe it impacts all of life. You see, grace isn't just a subject uh, for songs and for sermons. No, it's the substance for life. You know, another way to say that is that grace is not just uh, another app in the app store. No, no, it's the operating system upon which the Christian life is lived. You see, we believe that, like, that we're not only saved by grace, but grace also grows us. And so God's grace and our understanding of God's grace, it impacts all of life. And so everything that we have covered up until this point over the last five weeks as we've unpacked Romans 12 can really be described as the outworking of God's grace in our life. It's it's the working out what God has worked in. And so I couldn't think of a a better way to close out the series than to just end where we began. And we're going to focus our attention primarily on Romans 12 verses 1 and 2. And so let's read these two verses together. Some crowd participation is going to be uh, very helpful. And I'll pray and then we'll jump in. And so everyone aloud, I need to hear you. Let's go. Let's read this together. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Pray with me. God, with one voice and one heart, spread out all over the city, the county, even the country. God, we ask that you right here, right now, that you would teach us and free us with the good news of your amazing grace. Amen. You know, in the 1980s, taking you way back here, in the 1980s, the state of Texas had a huge litter problem. I mean, they say everything's bigger in Texas, right? Well, so is the litter problem that they had in the 80s. You see, all alongside the road, litter was scattered everywhere. And at the time, the state was spending about $25 million per year on cleanup alone. The Department of Transportation, they had tried and tried and tried to fix it. They, had, they tried running these anti-litter campaigns to get people to start caring enough to stop littering. 
I mean, they used guilt and shame tactics, like an ad that featured a picture of a Native American shedding a tear over litter. They even tried appealing to people's feelings with cute and cuddly little animals, like a little cartoon owl that said, give a hoot, don't pollute. But none of this was working. The roadside litter only grew worse. And so what Texas decided to do was to bring in the nation's leading researcher on litter. Yes, apparently that's a real job. They brought in the nation's leading researcher on litter to help figure out a, a solution. And so the researcher came in and he knew that if they were going to be effective, they're going to have to reach the right audience. And so what he did was he created a persona. He created a profile of the average person in Texas who would litter. And he nicknamed this person Bubba. Okay, let me tell you about Bubba. Bubba was an 18 to 35 year old pickup driving male who loved sports, loved country music, was very anti-authority, was not gonna give in to guilt and shame tactics, and surely was not gonna shed a tear or listen to a cute cuddly little animal telling him what to do. No, the question was, how do you get someone like Bubba to change his behavior? One option might have been to design a fear-based approach, you know, warn, warn Bubba of hefty fines, hefty fines and punishment. But Bubba's strong anti-authoritarian, like his strong, he'd, he'd push back against that. That would just backfire. And the researcher found that the best way to change Bubba's behavior was to convince him that people like him did not litter. So they came up with a campaign built around one slogan that changed everything. Maybe you've heard it. Don't mess with Texas. Don't mess with Texas. You see, they created TV commercials. They brought in Dallas Cowboy players to, 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 to pick up trash alongside of the road, crushing a beer can in their hand, looking into the camera and saying, don't you mess with Texas. Don't mess with Texas. They brought in a uh, famous Houston Astros pitcher who came. He looked right in the camera and he said, throwing stuff away, that's the Texan thing to do. And then he took you know, a thing of trash and he threw a split finger trash ball right into the can and the, the, the trash can explodes into flames. I mean, it was pretty epic. Okay, so the essence of the campaign message was this. Texans don't litter. That's not who we are. The campaign was an instant success. Within one year, the amount of litter had declined 29%. You know, another interesting uh, thing that I learned as I read about the story was that the Department of Transportation, they had originally planned to include a separate program to enforce the litter, the litter laws more vigorously. They had, um, they, they were really, they were all set to use a classic fear tactic. If you litter, you're gonna get caught, you're gonna get prosecuted. But because the Don't Mess With Texas campaign was so successful, the enforcement program was completely abandoned. You see, because the essence of the message spoke to Bubba's identity, any appeal to fear, guilt, shame, that wasn't even necessary. You see, what Bubba needed in order to change his behavior was a compelling message about his identity. This is who you are, Bubba. You're a Texan. And guess what? Texans don't litter. It's not who we are. What I love about that story is that it highlights a very, very important truth. And that truth is this, that identity always precedes activity. 
Identity precedes activity. You see, identity, who we are, that is what drives, what fuels, what motivates our activity, what we do. You see, you and I, we are wired to live from identity. I mean, we can tell people what they should be doing. We can tell them all day long until we are blue in the face what they should be doing. But real change and heartfelt obedience, that doesn't happen until our identity is invoked. And so this truth that identity precedes activity. I mean, this is so important when it comes to the Christian life. And I want to talk about why that is. But first, I know that when I even use the term the Christian life, there's a lot of different things that can come to mind for different people. So I want to try something here. I want to try a little word association exercise with you. I want us to take, I don't know, 20 seconds or so. And if you're gathered together with some other people, I want you to quickly, quickly share what is a word or phrase that comes to mind for you when you hear the term, the Christian life. Okay, this is quick. This is just 20 seconds. So it's gotta be rapid fire, no lengthy monologues, just really quick. And let's start with the oldest person in the room. Okay, what is one word or phrase that comes to mind when you hear the term, the Christian life? Ready, go. And we're back. <laughs> I, I apologize if I interrupted anyone. But what word, what phrase came to mind for you? You know, for me, when I hear the term, the Christian life, something, some words and phrases that come to mind for me are obedience, following Jesus, reading the Bible, becoming more Christ-like, doing good works, loving God, loving others. These are all wonderful, very important things, things that, that we are called to do as Christians. But what I want us to see and to understand about the Christian life is this, is that before the Christian life is a description of how I ought to live, it is first and foremost a declaration of who I am. See, the Christian life is an identity before it is instruction. It's a statement of who I am at the core. And this identity is then what shapes my behavior. You know, over the last five weeks, we have, we've talked a lot about behavior. Uh, and I don't know about you, but I have found the messages in this sermon series to be so timely for the season of life that we are in. And what I want us to see today and be reminded of is that everything that we have covered in Romans 12, in our journey through this, this chapter, all of the instruction that we have received, and there's been a lot. I mean, there's roughly 40 commands in Romans 12 alone. But everything from how we are to act with one another and humility and serving one another and loving one another and being honoring to one another, hospitable, all of that to how we are to treat the people who persecute us, how we're supposed to bless them and loving our enemies. You see, everything that we've covered in Romans 12, all of the instruction that we've received and all of the call that we have been given to live with grace toward one another. What if... What if all of that wasn't a list of what we need to do in order to be good Christians? But rather, was the, it, what if it was a picture of who we are? 
What if Romans 12, far from being a recipe for moral improvement, was more like an owner's manual describing the features of what life that is what a life gripped by grace begins to look like? What if Romans 12 wasn't so much a prescription for achieving the Christian life, but rather was a description, a description of what the new life we've received in Christ begins to look like as we learn to trust who God is and what he says about us? We believe this is what we are getting with Romans 12. Paul is painting a picture of what life begins to look like when you are gripped by God's life and identity-altering grace. You see, Paul, he's gone to great lengths to explain the glorious news of what God has done in and through Jesus Christ. He's spent 11 chapters unpacking this news. And he begins chapter 12 by saying, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. You see, everything that comes from this point on is done in view of God's mercy. I want to double click really quick on that word mercy. I mean, what mercy? Well, really, it's everything. Everything that we have seen from chapter 1 to chapter 11, everything that has preceded chapter 12 can fall under the heading of God's mercy on display. So by way of review, I mean, the book of Romans can really be broken down into four parts. This is a very simple outline, but I think I find it very helpful. Part one, Paul says, you've got a serious problem. You have a serious problem, and the problem is not what you're doing. The problem is who you are. The problem isn't bad behavior. The problem is death. And so the solution is going to require something much greater than behavior improvement. Part two, we see the solution to the problem is presented. And the solution isn't do more, try harder, get better. No, the, the solution is crucifixion. The solution is you need to die. And that's the opposite message, really, of what the world tells us, right? I mean, the world tells us that the answer is, no, no, the answer is improve yourself. The answer is success. The answer is money. That perfecting yourself, that's the answer. Becoming a better person, that's the answer. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Come and die with me. Your life is no good to me this way. You need, you got to die. You got to be buried and you got to be raised. And then I'll give you new life. I'll give you my life. And that, that is salvation. Part three, Paul explains well, who's this, self, this offer of salvation for? Is it for you, 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 but not you, but not you? Or is it, is it on the table for everyone? And Paul, he says that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And then we get to Romans 12, where Paul begins to offer very practical and very timely advice. In other words, it's after you have, if you've seen and you've seen like chapters 1 through 11, you've seen all of that and, that and what it's describing that if you are in Christ, I mean, it means you've been taken out of death 
You've been placed into the life of Christ. You've been transferred out of death. You've been made alive, that you are fundamentally new. This is chapters 1 through 11, unpacking, unearthing this good news. When all that settles in, when you, when you see all that, well then what does life begin to look like? And this is where part four of Romans begins. Part four of Romans is, this is we're living life in view of God's mercy. We're living all of life in view of God's mercy. And I want us to notice that God's mercy, it doesn't produce a passive life. I mean, there's been a lot of attacks, not outside of the church, but even inside the church, there's been attacks on what we, if we talk about grace too much, if we talk about mercy too much, if we talk about that, it's just going to cause Christians to be lazy and passive. And what Paul, he, Paul's describing what your new identity looks like when it begins to express itself. And it is far from passive. One of the first things that he says is that we are to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. A living sacrifice. Notice that who you are is living. And this is important. Christian, God is not trying to kill you. God is not trying to kill you. There's a lot of talk these days, especially in Christian circles, about dying and I'm just dying daily. I'm just dying. You know, and I get it when we, I get it when we're talking about dying to a, a bad attitude, dying to a, a sinful thought. I mean, that, I get that. But let's be clear. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. And guess what? God isn't trying to kill what he has made new. You see, if you are in Christ, you already died. You were united to Christ in his death, in his burial, and then raised to new life in his resurrection. And so the Christian life is not a life characterized by dying over and over, but realizing that we are united to Christ and his life, and his life is eternal life. You see, before salvation, you were already dead. The gospel came and the gospel brings life, not death. You see, God makes us alive. And that is our identity. So let's live. The invitation is to live in light of this identity as people who are dead to sin, but alive to God. And so now you and I, we get to wake up each day offering our bodies as a living, living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. And that phrase, offering our bodies, I mean, this means it's offering all that we are. All that we are, we're, we're offering to God for Him to use for His glory. I want us to, to, let's not overlook that. Notice what's being offered here is not some kind of gift of performance. No, no, God's not just interested in a gift. He, you know, He wants the giver. He's not just interested in what you do for Him. He's interested in you. He wants you. And I know that you might be thinking, well, I don't feel good enough for God. I don't feel like I'm not living the Christian life like I feel like I'm supposed to. You know, I don't, I don't feel holy and acceptable. I need to clean myself up before I present myself to God. And if that's you, I, I appreciate your concern, but the job of cleaning you up is far too great for you to handle. Again, you don't and you didn't need cleaning up. You needed death and resurrection. And that's exactly why Jesus came. And now everything that you need to be made clean, to be made right, that has all been forever handled. I mean, holy and pleasing. I mean, think about it. 
We're told to offer ourselves as holy and pleasing to God. Well, what is it that makes you and I holy and pleasing? Is it something that we do? Well, no. There's only one thing that makes us holy and pleasing. That's the work of Christ. It's the blood of Jesus. It's his once for all sacrifice that makes us holy and pleasing to God. So hear this, Christian. If we are in Christ, then holy and pleasing to God is who you are. If you are in Christ, holy and pleasing is not something that you are trying to achieve. It's who you are right here, right now. That is your identity. And when we lean into this, when we give up trying to be holy, trying to be pleasing to God, and instead trust who he says we are, holy and pleasing, uh, and we begin to live from that new identity, that right there is the essence and the definition of true worship. You see, the Christian life is not a life of trying. It's a life of trusting. It's not about trying to be something that we're not. It's about trusting who God is and what he says about who we are. You know, this, this, this uh, trusting God and offering our bodies as a living sacrifice, this is not just a one-time deal. This is, this is a lifelong process. You know, Romans 12, 2, the next verse, Paul says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And there's a lot that we could say about this, this one verse, but I just want to highlight a couple things. Again, notice that the Christian life is not a passive life. It is an active life that is shaped and fueled by identity. Paul says, do not conform to the pattern of this world. Well, why not? Well, because we don't belong to the world anymore. We don't belong to this world. We are people who have been transferred from one realm to another. We've been transferred out of death and placed into life. We've been hoisted up out of death and we've been placed into Christ and his life. You see, we have a new spiritual passport. We have a new spiritual, we have new spiritual paperwork. We have a new birth certificate. And all of this is so important to remember because we live in a world that is perpetually and relentlessly trying to shape us and mold us. The world has a pattern. It has a way of doing things. The world will try and try and try to fit you and I into its mold. Its mold is one of self-sufficiency, do-it-yourself spirituality, pride, selfishness, greed, and so, so much more. But guess what? The pattern of the world is no longer compatible with who you are because you're a new creation. Sure, we will still sin. We all stumble in many ways, as James says. And it's in those moments, it's going to be very tempting to believe the lie that says, look, you did it again. You're not new. You're a failure. Look at this. Look at yourself. But we need to remember that what we do does not dictate who we are. Even our sin, our failures, it does not change who we are. It doesn't alter our, our identity. Because remember, identity is not contingent on behavior, but birth. Let me explain. You see, when you and I were born into this world, we were born into this world as sinners long before we ever sinned, long before we ever committed a, a sin. We were sinners because 
by birth. Our identity was sinner from birth, not behavior. Now in Christ, when we are born again, we are called saints. We're called righteous, holy. Again, not because of behavior, not because of something that we did, but because of birth, new birth. So now as children of God, saints, holy and righteous, I mean, we're still learning. We're still growing in what that even means. But we're not becoming more of a saint. We're not becoming more righteous than we are. We're learning what it looks like to live life from that unshakable identity. You know, an example that I use a lot is the example of Archer, our son. I mean, from the very first moment he was born, he was 100% Carlson. 100% Carlson. He's not going to become more of our son as time goes on. No, he was, he, he was from the moment he was born, he was as much our son as he will ever be. Sure, he's learning over time who he is. He's learning whose he is. He's learning. He's growing. His mind will be renewed. You know, he knows how to say dada. He knows how to say mama. And right now he's look, he looks at everything and points and says, trash, trash. <laughs> We're working on that. Um, but he has right now, he has no clue how loved he is. He has no clue how much joy we take in him, how much joy he brings us. And I think the same is true for God's family. You know, as God's kids, we get to spend the rest of our lives, the rest of our lives, not trying to get in and trying to stay in the family. No, rather, we get to spend the rest of our lives discovering what it means to be a part of God's family. We're already in. Our identity is fixed. We're holy and pleasing to dad. And instead of conforming to the pattern and the mold of the world, we get to renew our minds. We get to learn. We get to grow in our understanding of just how loved we are and how safe we are in Christ. And what's cool is that as our minds are renewed with that reality, and as we begin to believe it, we cannot help but to start to give away our lives for the sake of others. You see, as our identity begins to sink in and we begin to live from that place of identity, we begin to see our gifts and our talents not as something to make me better, to make me better than others and to, and to be better than, better than you. No, I, I begin to see my gifts and my talents as a way to serve you. Our gifts and talents become something that we can use to serve the family, the body of Christ. We, can, we begin to want to share with those in need because it's who we are. Not because, oh, you have to. That's the Christian thing to do. It's like, no, that's who I am. I, we share with those in need. Generosity, hospitality, those become, those are our default mode. We can rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn, because our new nature is empathetic. You see, we no longer need to live life in order to get. We are freed to live, to give. And all of that flows out of our new identity. So just like Bubba, you and I are wired to live from identity. So Sikos, I want to just close with this simple encouragement. Spend the rest of your life learning who you are in Christ and then wake up each day and just be yourself. God, we thank you for your word and for your work. Thank you for sending Jesus to do for us what we could never, ever do for ourselves. 
God, if I'm honest, there are many days, many times each day where I don't feel holy, where I don't feel pleasing to you. You know, it's tempting to think that I can somehow cause you to change your mind about me. And I'm sure that there are others listening who feel the exact same way. And Father, we ask that you would continue to heal our broken belief systems as you renew our minds by your spirit and your truth. Help us to see you for who you are and ourselves as the new creation you've created us to be as people who are holy and pleasing to you. We praise in your name. Amen.